Genesis chapter 24. Genesis, for the final time, we are going to conclude the second of a long four-part series through this very long and very important book with Genesis 24 today. Yes, Abraham dies in chapter 25, but as you'll see today, we are already transitioning in this text uh, from Abraham as we begin with Abraham, but then we end with Isaac. And since next week, I'm going to be away preaching at First Baptist in Manhattan. Pastor Mike will be preaching here. This is a good opportunity for us to transition as well. I'm going to save Genesis 25 because that will serve as a good summary and review of Abraham and the promises to Abraham when we pick back up in part three of Genesis in um, two years or, or so. Which means that in two weeks, get excited, uh, we are going to start the Gospel of John. In two weeks, we're going to start working through John. I started seven and a half years ago in this pulpit preaching a year plus long series through the gospel of Mark. We haven't been in a gospel since then. So I'm pretty excited. It's time to get back in a gospel. We've been looking at how all these promises and stories in Genesis are shadows and hints of Jesus. We've been looking at all these types of Jesus, how all this anticipates Jesus and points to Jesus. Now we're going to get to study him and stare at him directly and in great detail. No more shadows, now the substance. So the Gospel of John here in two weeks. Start reading it now. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that the promises made to Abraham were ultimately made to Abraham's seed, Jesus the Christ. They were ultimately about Abraham's seed, Jesus the Christ. That's what we're going to see here again one final time this morning in Genesis chapter 24 um, as we look and see that this too will ultimately be about Abraham's seed, which means that this story too is ultimately at least getting us to and about Jesus Christ. How? Well, look at the text for a second. Look, look over it. First thing that you should notice is it's massive. We have a massive text before us this morning. Uh, 31 verses are given to the creation of everything that exists in Genesis chapter 1. 67 verses are given to Isaac finding a wife. The longest single story in this book, one of the longest chapters in the Bible. Why is that? Let's see if we can seek to answer that question this morning. But in light of the length of this text, this text is almost 2,000 words. Just reading the text, 2,000 words. My sermons are generally around 6,000 words. You may think it feels like 20,000 words, but it's, it's only 6,000 words. That means that my time is limited, which is all right. This is a good challenge because succinctness is not a strength of mine. But I never want to preach from a text that I haven't read. So we're going to read this entire text this morning. Because we believe that this text is God's word. We believe that it is living and active. We believe that it is the means through which God ministers his grace and his presence to us. So we're not going to be able to get into the great detail that we sometimes like to get. But we're going to get the big ideas. Uh, we're going to use this strangely long text to summarize and review kind of the whole narrative arc of Abraham. Because I think this kind of serves as a good kind of capstone and summary to all that we've been looking at. Because remember, the story of Abraham is about the promises of God. Abraham promises. If you think Abraham, think promises. God has repeated those promises many times. And he has done so again at the end of chapter 22. Remember in verse 17, he says to Abraham, surely I will bless you. That is what God is doing for Abraham. And that is what God is ultimately doing for you. 
for all who are in Christ. Blessing. The Lord has promised good to me. What does that blessing consist of for Abraham? How does God bring about his promise of good? Rest of verse 17. I will surely bless you. Chapter 22, 17. And I will surely multiply your offspring. Verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's Genesis 24. That's what Genesis 24 is about. This chapter is God continuing to fulfill his promise of blessing through a seed, through a son. God's promises, remember, summarized in blessing, seed, land. I will bless you. Blessing, how? Through the seed and through the land. Last week, we looked at the land. This week, we close by looking at the seed. We move now from a funeral to a wedding, from an ending to a beginning. And so chapter 23, the death, the end of Sarah, as she is separated from Abraham, chapter 24, the beginning, the birth, in a sense, of Rebekah, as she is united to Isaac, and then chapter 25, the death of Abraham. We are transitioning. We're transitioning. We sought to answer the question last week. What happens to the promises of God in light of the death of God's people? What happens when the recipients of the promises die before receiving the promises? Well, here, in part, is, is the answer. Here, we are seeing covenant continuity. Here are the promises of God passed on from one generation to the next. Uh, God continues to carry out his promises even after the big names are carried off the scene. Nothing can stop the promises of God. Death cannot stop the promises of God. Kit, death cannot stop the promises of God. Be encouraged this morning because God is faithful and true and good. This long boy meets girl, Isaac finds a wife story is about the providence of God faithfully bringing about the fulfillment of the promises of God. But it's the way that God does it in this story that I think explains the strange length of this story and I think could serve as a great encouragement to us. Because I want you to notice as we read this long text, God never speaks in this whole story. There are no grand visions. There are no supernatural miracles. It's all quite ordinary. Probably quite like most of your life. Ordinary. And yet, here we see, in the midst of this ordinary and everyday story, a romance, a wedding, we see God faithfully working behind the scenes, encouraging you through this long but ordinary story that God is faithfully working in your long but ordinary story and that he will accomplish his purposes and he will fulfill his promises and that he is with you always. It's kind of a big picture of what I think is being conveyed in this story. So let's read it. Three important words. Uh, we're going to review three themes at the center of the whole Abraham story that I think are also then kind of summarized for us here as we conclude. Uh, Abraham promises. We've been talking about that. Let's talk more specifically this morning about three other key themes in the life of Abraham. Faith, providence, and covenant. Faith, providence, and covenant. I'm going to argue point number one. We're going to see that faith acts in light of the promises of God. We're going to see Abraham do that. Then point two, we're going to see that providence then carries out the promises of God. And finally, we're going to close as we should with the Abraham story coming back to covenant. And we're going to see how covenant guarantees the promises of God. 
He will hold me fast. What a wonderful song and encouragement. How? Covenant. Covenant is how he holds us fast. So faith, providence, and covenant. Genesis chapter 24. It's a huge text, so we're going to break it up. I'm going to read it in parts. We'll read, we'll talk for a little bit, we'll read, and we'll talk for a little bit. So Genesis chapter 24, we're going to start just by reading verses 1 through 9. But pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Let's stop there and let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, your word is so good. It is true. It is right in all that it affirms. Father, these are not just words, but Father, these are revelations. These are your words to us. These words communicate you to us. They reveal to us who you are, how you act, how we can know you. So I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you through this time. I pray that you would um, grow our affection for you and for your son through this time. Father, we have a long text before us. We are not used to long texts. We are not used to sustained attention and focus. Father, help us. Pray that you would help us to focus on your word. Father, I pray that you would help me as I seek to, to teach this word faithfully. Father, apart from you, I can do nothing. So, Father, please help the teaching of your word. Please help the hearing of your word. Father, use this to shape our hearts and our minds. Father, use this text to encourage and edify these people in this room that come with various burdens and various fears and various struggles. Father, use this word to encourage us and to point us to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this only in his name. Amen. All right, so this can be a bit different. Normally, we'd preach on a text that size and take about 50 minutes. Uh, that was just nine of 67 verses. So, so bear with me. We're going to see how this goes. Point number one, we're going to see that faith acts in light of the promises of God. What we see happening in the beginning of this text here is the same thing we saw happening in the last chapter. God has promised blessing to Abraham. And pay attention as we keep reading the text. And I want you to note, remember, always look for repetition. Note how the theme of blessing is again woven throughout the entire narrative. You're going to see it. We see it in verse 1. We're going to see it in 27, 31, 35, 48, 60. And then take note how the theme of blessing is thus woven throughout the narrative of your life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. God promises blessing 
to his people. This whole thing is about God's uh, fulfilling of that promise to bless his people. And that's how this final episode of Abraham's life begins. He was old, just in case that wasn't clear. He was well advanced in years. I don't describe your friends as well advanced in years. Um, but actually, this is a good thing. Old age was actually understood back then as a blessing and as a gift from God. People actually looked up to and revered uh, age and, and elders. Um, so Abraham is blessed. Abraham is old. And that's what the next thing says. It says the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And that's kind of like the, the heading or the introduction to this story. The introduction to the story that is the exit of Abraham. And it's all about blessing. And it's all about how that blessing is going to be passed on from Abraham to the son of Abraham to the seed of Abraham and then how ultimately through the seed of Abraham to bring about the blessing to all the nations of the earth. And what Abraham is doing in these first nine verses is acting in faith, in light of God's promise of blessing, just like he did last week. Remember, God had promised Abraham possession in the land. Sarah has died. Abraham not having any possession in the land. So then Abraham in faith goes in and gets a piece of possession in that land. Big idea. Faith acts. Faith obeys. Yes, faith is the gift of God by which we receive and rest in the benefits of Christ's work on our behalf. We believe in him. Faith trusts and rests in God's provision of grace. So in that sense, faith is very much passive. It, it receives. But then in light of that, faith is also then very much active. In response to the free grace of God and the full and final work of Christ, we then live and we act and we do. Remember over and over again, we read two weeks in a row, Hebrews chapter 11. We see faith acts. By faith, Abel offered. Verb. By faith, Noah built an ark. Verb. By faith, Abraham Obey. All these by faiths are followed by verbs. Faith acts. And it acts in light of and in response to the promises of God. That's what Abraham's doing. And so he speaks to his servant in verse 2. Keep in mind, these are the last recorded words spoken by Abraham in the whole story. What are they about? The promise. Right? The seed. Reflecting his call by the Lord and his confidence in the Lord, all of which happens by the word of the Lord, which revealed to Abraham the promises of the Lord. Abraham in chapter 12 enters into history in the context of the promises of God. Abraham's central place in history is due to the promises of God. And here we see Abraham exiting history with the promises of God on his lips as he one last time acts in faith in light of those promises. And so Abraham says to his faithful, unnamed servant, maybe this is Eleazar who we met earlier, we don't know. There's some sort of a ritual here, a hand under the thigh. Uh, the word can just be translated loins. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, it's, it's some sort of kind of enacted oath, some sort of ritual. Think about it. this whole thing is about Abraham's seed. This is about the, the importance of, of procreation, multiplying to covenant community. Well, here's an oath somehow related to that and connected to that. Here's thankfully descriptive, not prescriptive, right? You don't have to do this to swear oaths. Uh, the point is, this is important. The servant must swear by the Lord the God of heaven and earth. This must be done. What must be done? Verse three, do not take a wife 
for my son Isaac from among the Canaanites. Why not? What's the big deal? It's because of the curse. It's because of God's command to his people not to be unequally yoked to the world. There is a fundamental distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. And this has been evidenced from the very beginning since Genesis 3.15 where we see the split. And God says there will be two people, two cities, two seeds at enmity with one another. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, not God's people and God's people. And then remember, chapter 4 traces the seed of the serpent as these lines diverge. Chapter 5 traces uh, the seed of the woman, the godly line, as these things diverge. Chapter 4, chapter 5. But then remember, everything falls apart in Genesis 6. And God comes in to judge the world with a flood. Why? What happened? Angels didn't start sleeping with women. It's not what it says. The two lines began to mix. That's what happens. The godly line began to intermarry marry with the godless line. And Genesis 6 says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Evil deserves judgment. We all understand that. Uh, justice does something about wrongdoing and evil. And so God justly sends the flood. But he also graciously saves Noah and his family including Noah's son, Ham, but whom then we saw that in chapter 9, after the flood, it's actually through Ham that the seed of the serpent continues. And then we read in Genesis 9, 25, Cursed be Canaan, Ham's son. And so Abraham says here, no matter what, do not take a wife for my son from among the Canaanites. Quite simple. The people of God are not to marry the people of the world. For what fellowship does light have with darkness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 2 Corinthians 6. None is the answer. And so we saw a little bit of this on, on Thursday night. Do not be unequally yoked with the world. That's what Abraham is talking about here. That's what Abraham gets. He is a good and godly father that desires good and godliness for his son. And he knows that there is nothing more important to that than the marriage relationship. And so Abraham acts in faith, he commands his servant, get my son a wife. Verse seven, he reminds his servant of God's promise and encourages his servant that God will guide him. And so the servant swears and then the servant goes. Faith acts in light of the promises of God. God has given to Abraham a clear word. Abraham believes the word and then he acts in light of that word. Abraham lives his entire life in light of the word of God, in light of the promises of God. Of God. Church, God has given you his clear word. Your job is to know it. And what good is God's promise to you if you don't know God's promise to you? That's found in the word. Read it. So know it, then believe it, and then act in light of it. God has not left us to ourselves. Oh, thankfully, he has not left us to figure out this world and our lives ourselves. He has revealed himself. To us. He has revealed his ways in his world to us. He has told us how we can know him and be known by him only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he has given us his good law, which tells us how to obey him and how to live in his world. So the Christian life, it's very hard, but it's not that complicated. Right? Faith acts in light of the promises of God. Be doers of the word. God has spoken. God's people believe and then act in light of that 
word. That's what Abraham is doing here. He's seeking to bring about these promises. Let's keep reading. Look back at the text. Let's do verses 10 through 28. We'll take it in chunks. This is a really good story. It's good narrative. It's well written. So, so pay attention to what's going on here. Verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water in the time of evening, the time when the women would go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born uh, to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young, young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Stop there. Almost halfway there. Point number two. Providence carries out the promises of God. Providence carries out the promises of God. Uh, this would have been about a month-long journey. Uh, this is far. This is long. Uh, I, I complain when I have to drive four hours to Boston or something. This is a month to go get, uh, the, to get Rebecca. So uh, this long, arduous journey is summarized in one verse. And then we get to the main action. Then we get to the detail. We, we won't be able to focus on all the detail. We've read it. We're going to read it again in a moment. Let's get the big idea. The servant arrives at his destination in the evening. The camels are highlighted. It's kind of strange. The camels are tired. The camels are thirsty. That's an important detail. It's also evening. That's the time when the women would go out to draw water. That, too, is an important detail. Uh, the, the servant understands the significance of his mission, and so he prays in verse 12. O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love, remember that word, to my master Abraham. 
So again, note that he's praying in light of the promises of God. But we've lost this central component of prayer. A calling on the name of the Lord. Praying is in large part a praying in light of what God has promised. It is asking God to do what God has said that he would do. Um, God has promised that the line would run through Isaac. That obviously means then that Isaac will have a wife, without which that line could not continue. And so the servant in pra prays in light of that promise. And he asks for a sign. Be careful. Right? Much in Scripture is descriptive, right? Not prescriptive. Uh, young single men who are desirous of marriage. This is not an invitation for you to claim uh, that the woman who comes through the door of the fellowship hall and offers you a cup of coffee, right? She is your soulmate. She's the one that God has sent uh, to be your wife. No, it's not how it works. You're not Isaac. Right? What we have here is a pivotal moment in redemptive history before we have God's, God's word written down and recorded for us. So this is an entirely appropriate request for the servant, well, not necessarily for you. Uh, I, I look at lots of sermons when I preach on a text. I think there's about 90% of sermons on this text are about like seven steps to finding your soulmate, right? Seven steps for how to find a spouse based in. Use your father, right? Go to Abraham. Uh, pray about it. And God will give you a sign. Make sure you talk to the brother. That's not what this text is about. <laughs> and that, that's, that's not the point. And the point here is not to draw attention to what the servant does. The point is to draw attention to what God does. Notice this. Look at 14 and 15. The servant requests that the woman who willingly waters him and his camels will be the sign in verse 14. In verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. That's the point. Perfect timing. Providential timing. She is from the family of Abraham's brother. She is beautiful. She is a virgin. And she is a woman of character. She is generous. She is hospitable. She is hardworking. And that's what's highlighted. That's what's most important. Uh, we have just gotten romance and dating entirely wrong uh, today. Physical appearance matters. Attraction matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. This matters more. It's her character. It's her internal beauty that is being emphasized. Again, why, why all this talk about the camels? It's because of this. Because it's emphasizing this aspect of, of Rebecca's character. Uh, camels were so effective in the desert, right? They had the hump, right? They could go so long without needing water. But once camels needed water, they needed a lot of water. And they loaded up. They finished about a month-long journey. A thirsty camel, I'm not an expert on camels, um, but I, as I've read, um, camels would drink about 25 gallons to refresh and refuel. An average water jar, again, apparently at this time was about three gallons. So that's 10 gallons at tw 10 camels at 25 gallons each. Not pretty good at math, not very good at math, but I can do that one. With a three-gallon jar, well, that's anywhere from 80 to 100 times back and forth from well to trough, carrying about 25 pounds each time. It's not like she got a cup of water and like dumped it in. No, like this would have taken a long time. This was work, and she does that work. The, head, the servant sees this. The servant is starting to understand what's going on. He loads her up with costly gifts in verse 22. He learns the identity that we already knew. And in verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love, there's that word again, and his faithfulness toward my master. 
Our second point, second part of verse 27. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The Lord has led me. That's the providence of God. The Lord has led me. Providence carries out the promises of God. This is, again, I think there's all, why is this text so long and why is it here? Still discussion and questions about that. This is in part why I think this is actually such an important story and in part why I think it's such a long story. We've got 14 chapters in this book devoted to Abraham. I mean, that's a lot. That's a good amount. Those 14 chapters, though, if you think about it, cover a period of almost 100 years of Abraham's life. If you look in your pew Bible, that takes up about 11 pages in your pew Bible. Feel long, I guess. It's not. I love biographies. Uh, David McCullough's uh, Pulitzer-winning uh, biography of John Adams is 750 pages. Uh, Edmund Morris wrote an amazing trilogy all about the life of Theodore Roosevelt, consisting of about 2,500 pages, and it's masterful and it's excellent. Here we have Abraham in 11 pages. You can't quite get into the same amount of detail in 11 pages as you can in 2,500 pages. So why is such a big chunk of that small amount given to this? Well, I think it's in part to protect us from misunderstanding Abraham's life and then in misunderstanding how God generally works in the world and relates to his people. Think about it. We've seen and we focus on some of the big grand things that happens in Abraham's story. Understandably, God speaks to Abraham. God appears to Abraham. We've had visions. We've had dreams. We've had miraculous deliverances. But that's not the norm, even for Abraham. Those are just a couple of important snapshots and snippets from this hundred years of his life. This hundred years, which would have been generally much more like Genesis chapter 24 that we're reading right now. God faithfully orchestrating and directing and leading and guiding. This is a story about the everyday, ordinary providence of God. Doesn't that make this then a very relevant story to all of our fairly ordinary and everyday lives? The point is, here's God working in those things just as much as these big, grand, miraculous things. The Lord has led me. Church, the Lord has and is and will lead you. And the Lord leads you through his word. He leads you through his, through his people, through godly uh, counsel and encouragement. And he leads you through his providence. Word, people, providence. Quick review, because we're closing and summarizing. And what is what is providence? Catechism. One more time. I'm going to somehow convince you that catechisms are helpful. Westminster, shorter catechism. God is sovereign. He's the king. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He decrees all things. What does that mean? What are those? Question seven of the catechism. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal plan based on the purpose of his will by which for his own glory he has foreordained Everything that happens this week, 2020, everything ordained, ordered, decreed to happen by God. Okay, what does that mean? How does God do that? Uh, question eight, how does God carry out his decrees? God carries out his decrees, his eternal plan. He carries them out in creation and providence. We understand creation. God creates everything. We get that. 
But what's providence? Question 11. What is God's providence? God's providence is his completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing every creature and every action. Preserving, governing every creature, every action. Or from our Second London Baptist Confession, God, the good creator of all things and his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. God's providence is his meticulously upholding, governing. Mike prayed, right? The, the, the king's heart is like a stream of water in God's hands, right? Whether whatever side you're on, whether you're panicked or elated, hey, guess what? God is sovereign over what is going to happen. God is directing everything, governing all things to his good and glorious ends. That's God's providence. That's what we see happening in this story. God doesn't speak in the whole story, but God still acts in the whole story. He is still orchestrating and directing. He is still bringing about his good and glorious ends. He's fulfilling his promises, and he's doing it through the ordinary, everyday events of life. You need God's providence. You don't need sensational signs or marvelous miracles or dramatic dreams or vivid visions. Like that was four. So much of the Christian life is oh so ordinary. You need God's inerrant, sufficient word. You need God's ever-present, always-working, never-failing providence. The Lord has led me. And the Lord has and is and will lead you. Rest in the perfect providence of God. There are no accidents. Everything has a purpose. Uh, coronavirus, cultural collapse, election insanity, your work problems, health problems, relationship problems, tiny frustrations that often drive you crazy. I was driving the other day on the, the BQE, and I was just driving. And then, like, just, I don't know what happened. My glove box just popped open. It scared me. Like, ah, it, what was that? It was loud. It made those... And then I got frustrated. And I was like, why did, that, what is, why did that happen? Well, God ordained that to happen. And then I started thinking about God's providence and God's sovereignty. And then I had to repent uh, for my sin. And here's this dumb little thing that was bringing out this stupid little sin in my own heart. Hey, God was doing something in that and, and using that. All the tiny, not the, just the big things, everything. The little things. God is sovereign. He works out his plans through his providence. And if you are in Christ, he promises us, Romans 8, 28, he's taking all of these little things and masterfully weaving and working them together for your ultimate good. As we saw last week with the death of Sarah, God's promises are bigger than this life. God is doing something bigger than just our comfort and ease. He's making us holy. He's preparing us and fitting us for heaven. For eternity. And as we see him direct all the little details in this story to his good ends, we can be confident that he is directing all the little details in our stories to his good ends. Providence. And this, this is why I so love Article 13 of the Belgic Confession on Providence. Why have we been talking about providence so much? We've been talking about it more. We talked about it a lot in Philippians. COVID happened. We talked a lot, a lot about it in the Psalms. You need God's providence in times like these. Why? What's so helpful? What's comforting about God's providence? Listen to Article 13, Belgic Confession. You need this because this doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us 
by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father, who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordship, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they're all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that God holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without divine permission and will. God is always arranging. He's always sustaining as our gracious Heavenly Father who perfectly cares for us. Perfectly. Do you believe in the absolute sovereignty of God and in the perfect providence of God? That thing that you're so frustrated about and so fearful about. If you're in Christ, do you actually believe that God can weave and work that ultimately for your good? Can you rest and trust in him that this, whatever it is, light and momentary suffering in his hands is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory? Providence guarantees that. And here in God's providence, he has provided Isaac his bride. Rebekah is the one. And God makes that abundantly clear. Uh, God, please do this thing. Behold, Rebekah, here she is. But let's keep reading. There's lots of repetition. All right, here's the long stretch. We've got 30 verses. We're going to read 29 to 60. But stick with me. Uh, this is here for a reason. Let's read it, and then we will run through it. We're doing, we're doing well on time. Rebecca has run home to tell her family what's happened. Let's see what happens next. Verse 29. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. And he and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, the servant, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He, Laban, said, speak on. So the servant said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made him swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not come with, follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? 
She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right hand, by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank. And they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Stop there. You made it. You made it through the long part. Point number three. Covenant guarantees the promises of God. Most of what we just read is the servant simply reviewing in great detail the great detail that we just read. Why? I, I think it's because it's the repetition, the purpose is to highlight God's faithfulness to keep his promises and to bless his people and to providentially guide his people. I think that's why there's, there's so much repetition. And I want to close not just this sermon, but this series, again, talking about the covenant. Because the covenant is the means through which God blesses his people. There is no blessing apart from covenant. Um, but why is that the word that I'm highlighting after what we just read? Is that there at all? Is this about covenant at all? Well, I think that it is. Uh, we've already pointed out God's steadfast love in verses 12, 14, and 27. We just saw the servant use the word again in verse 49, asking for their steadfast love in response to the steadfast love that God has shown Abraham. So this whole section, the big chunk we just read, which we just can't spend a lot of time in, it, it, it revolves around the servant dealing with Rebekah's brother Laban. Um, we get a hint of the true character of Laban when we first meet him in verse 30, right? When our attention is drawn to his attention being drawn uh, to the rings and to the bracelets and to the gold that the servant gave to Rebekah. Right? Laban likes the money. Laban is a bit of a shady character, uh, and that will be even more evident when we get back to Laban in chapter 28, when Isaac's son Jacob uh, returns uh, to him. But the bulk of the text consists of the servant rehearsing God's steadfast love toward Abraham, and then asks if Laban and his father will show steadfast love to Abraham in giving Rebekah to be Isaac's wife. They agree. Verse 50, they somehow recognize this thing has come from the Lord. Right? Even they can recognize God's hand of providence working in these events. 
And after some attempts at stalling, probably for further negotiating, we don't know exactly what's going on, but even the 10 days could be translated or understood as much longer as we see Laban deal kind of shadily later on. Uh, but the servant insists, no, uh, th there should be no delay. Verse 56 again, for the Lord has prospered my way. Right, providence prospers the way of God's people. Rebecca reaffirms her desire to go. And then look at verse 60. Because here's the theme of blessing again. We opened with blessing. Well, here's the blessing. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. What is that? Well, that's basically the same covenant blessing that God has just promised to Abraham back in chapter 22, verse 17. It's the same thing. Blessing through the seed, may there be the multiplication, and then may he possess the gate of his enemies. That's the land. Blessing, seed, land. What's happening here is God's promises is being passed on from Abraham to Isaac. Now we're seeing specifically they're also being passed on from Sarah, who has now exited its scene, to Rebecca, who is now introducing, uh, being introduced onto the scene. And the word has said, the word Hebrew word behind God's steadfast love, has said is a covenant word. Has said is God's eternal, unfailing covenant love. That's the love that God keeps showing Abraham. That means that this is all about the covenant. Because the whole story of Abraham is all about the covenant. God has chosen Abraham. God has called Abraham for the purpose of making a covenant with Abraham. Called, chosen for covenant. Anyway, what is a covenant again? What is that? A brief review. It's, it's, it's simply a relationship. Covenant is about communion with God. Covenant is about communion with God. You can remember what a covenant it is with the core covenant principle. What's it about? God tells us. Here's the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's covenant. Uh, it's getting towards the end of the year, so I have a stack of books on my desk that I've been putting off and, and I've got to get back into them so I can finish them before the end of the year so that they can make my list. Um, so I had set aside Thomas Watson's wonderful body of divinity and so I picked it back up uh, this week. And I was working through his section on covenant on Friday, and it worked out that this would be very helpful for this message. I haven't used Watson's definition and explanation of covenant yet, so maybe this will be helpful. Here's what Watson writes. Watson says, the covenant is a solemn compact and agreement made between God and fallen man, wherein the Lord undertakes to be our God and to make us his people. And Watson then goes on to explain that there are two names given to the covenant. We talk a lot about how the new covenant is going to be called the covenant of grace. But then Watson points out and helpfully adds that this same covenant is also called the covenant of peace in Ezekiel 37, 26. Covenant of peace. Why? Watson writes, because the covenant seals up reconciliation between God and humble sinners. Before this covenant, there was nothing but enmity. God did not love us for a creature that offends cannot be loved by a holy God. And, he did, and we did not love him since a God that condemns cannot be loved by a guilty creature so that there was war on both sides. But God has found out a way in the new covenant to reconcile differing parties so that it is fitly called the covenant 
peace. We should talk more about the new covenant as a covenant of peace. Church, covenant is our only hope. Covenant is the only way that we can be with God. And that's the goal of life. Covenant is the only way that we can be forgiven and restored to him. And that's what this whole Abraham 14 chapter narrative is about. And that's what this one chapter of that 14 chapter narrative is about. The promises that God has made to Abraham and to us to restore what we destroyed. To solve our sin and our separation problem. And so we're given this long story with repeated detail, again, I think, to highlight God's providential faithfulness to his people in the everyday, ordinary events of their life. To remind us, to remind you, no matter how tedious or how long the quarantine has been or how pointless some of the things seem, that God is working in and through those ordinary, earthly events, directing them to his extraordinary and heavenly ends. And ultimately, that end is perfect communion and fellowship with the perfect God of love. And so for you and for me, great sinners, do you know yourself? Uh, do you know yourself intimately to be a great sinner? Uh, since sin separates us from the God of love, for you and for me, great sinners, to have communion and fellowship with the perfect God of love, that sin problem has to be solved. And that's what God is working towards, even here. That's what these promises are ultimately about. As we saw at the beginning, that the promise, these promises made to Abraham, Paul tells us, Galatians 3.16, are ultimately made to and about Jesus Christ. God is working here to provide Isaac a wife so that he would have a seed, a son, from whom eventually would come Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who gives himself for his church, who gives his life as a ransom for many. See, the covenant is about God with us. Jesus is named Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is how God is with us. God has promised blessing, and ultimately that blessing is God himself as Jesus lives perfectly in our place takes on our sin, dies substitutionally in our place, and then rises again so that we too can be restored to God and raised to newness of life. That's what God is driving towards, even here. It is the covenant that guarantees the promise of God because covenant is God binding himself to us. God makes a covenant with us to tie us fast to him. He will hold me fast. How? Covenant. Ezekiel refers to the bond of the covenant. And Watson goes on to say, God knows that we have slippery hearts. Therefore, he will have a covenant to bind us. That's a wonderful encouragement for someone like me. The covenant binds God to me. It's a covenant of peace. And its result for us is rest and joy. Which leads, finally, let me read the last uh, seven verses there, six verses there. Short and sweet, and then we're done. Look at verses 61 through 66. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the men. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, 
Who is that man walking in the field to us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his, mar his mother's death. The end. You made it. You've read all of Genesis 24. And what a beautiful end to the story. The story that is all about covenant ends with a covenant. The covenant of marriage, as Isaac and Rebekah are now bound together to become one flesh. I will be yours. You will be mine. Marriage is a covenant, and it is a comfort. So Isaac was comforted about his mother's death. And notice again, no Abraham at the end of that story. We begin the story with Abraham. We end the story with Isaac. Transition complete. And the death of God's saints does not hinder God's promises. Abraham is finished, but God's promises are just beginning. The Lord has promised good to me and to you. His promise is blessing, and it is God himself who is our ultimate blessing. And do you believe that? Do you believe that you have no good apart from God? What is it that you insist on pursuing and gaining that you think is your good? Is it a thing that is apart from God and other than God and separate uh, than God? We have no good apart from God. Do you believe that he is life? That there is no life apart from God? Is he what you are seeking? Is he what you are living for? Is he what you are loving? Is he where your mind has been fixed and focused this last week, these last two months, these last eight months? Use stories like these to see the amazing goodness of God, to enter into covenant with us. He didn't enter, enter covenant with angels. He didn't enter into covenant with the world. But God enters into covenant with us. God enters into covenant with me. I get to be in loving fellowship and communion with the creator God of the universe. I get to be in covenant with God because of Christ. Not in me. Christ. The Christ that was promised to Abraham over 3,000 years ago in these stories. The Christ that we're going to look at in great detail in two weeks as we start with one of the best lines in all of history. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is what God is doing for us. This should delight us, church. This should humble us. Again, all the stuff that's going on has nothing to do with this. But our hope is perfectly secure. Nothing can touch it. Nothing can shake it. This should delight us. This should humble us. This reminder of God's perfect and faithful providence should carry us through all the ordinary and all the difficulty of life. Church, God is working. You may not speak in this story. You may not see him. He's there, and he's working. He's working now, and he is working towards good, ultimate, eternal ends. Remember, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And God's promises are infinitely and eternally good. They are guaranteed for us by Christ and his covenant. Therefore, trust him and live your light, life in light of the promises of God. The Abraham narrative is here to reveal to us the promises of God and the covenant of God so that we can once again be restored to communion and fellowship with God. A great ending to the story as we see God's goodness displayed uh, to his servant here in this story. Made it through the long passage. 
If you would, bow with me and let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, your word is so rich. Father, it is so good. It is impossible for me to, to do it justice. I pray that you would give us, your people, great delight in your word. I pray that we would be a people who can't wait to read your word, who can't wait uh, to hear your word, and who can't wait, uh, like Abraham, to, to leave this place and then to live out your word, to live in light of your word. Father, shape us with this word. Father, use these big, long, sometimes confusing stories. Show us what's clear. Show us what's evidence. Evidence. Show us your, your faithfulness to your people. Show us how your plan always comes to fruition and how your promises are always fulfilled. And then encourage us and remind us that you have promised good to every single one of us who are in Christ. You have promised to protect and preserve us. You have promised to bring us to you. And all, everything that you're doing now in our lives and in this life is to prepare us for that and to fit us for heaven and for eternity. Oh, Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Help us to increasingly live our lives in light of eternity. Father, use your word, uh, use your saints, uh, use a growing knowledge of and rest in your providence uh, to lead us and to guide us, to comfort us and to encourage us and to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would use it now in the hearts of your people. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.